Hebrews 20:20, we see Jesus, increment 185. I'm simply titling today's increment, He Lives, maybe our briefest title so far. He Lives. And we'll begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the assurance right now that we have at your own right hand a divine intercessor who makes intercession for us in order to save us completely and we're grateful for that and we thank you father for the Holy Spirit who makes intercession in us for we don't often know how to pray or for what to pray so we thank you but we do know now that we need to pray for your enlightenment of us as we look into your word and may this message result in profound edification and upbuilding of the church, which is Christ's body. And that may you add in both stature and number to that body today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I first considered the question of universal salvation, and I was sort of up against the wall to have to consider it, I considered it dialectically. Now this is going to be another exercise in oversimplification for how to, I thought this through. But when I first considered the question of universal salvation in a dialectical way, I wrote down the basic options that were on the theological table. On the left, I wrote eternal damnation, or let's just call it eternal condemnation. And on the right side of the ledger I put universal salvation and that's where the basic debate occurred either eternal damnation or some people are a little lighter on it and they'll say annihilation describes what is supposed to happen to human beings in the afterlife if they were either not elected by God in the Calvinistic system or did not elect to believe in or obey God during the course of their lives on earth. Now, I didn't decide between these two. I learned from Aquinas that there's what we might call a middle term and a higher middle term. So I didn't decide either eternal condemnation or universal salvation between those two. But in the middle and above these two options, not just in the middle, but above these two options, I put the restoration of all things, which ultimately became the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ. But the restoration of all things it's a middle term and it's a higher term and so it wasn't just a decision between eternal condemnation and universal salvation but a middle higher answer universal saving significance of Jesus Christ so let's also call that the restoration of all things in which is included the annihilation 
of sin and of evil. We could say that there is a forever and permanent eternal annihilation of the old man, the Cain in us, as well as the eternal life of the new man, the Abel in us, in all human beings. And so this restoration of all things was due to the obedience of Jesus Christ for all rational beings, an obedience that resulted in death, and not just any death for him, but the death of the cross, the death of the cross in Philippians 2.8, in which he experienced death as the wages of sin for everyone. The restoration of all things in Jesus then was a middle option between eternal condemnation, universal salvation, a middle option, but also a higher middle option, one that could also be borne out biblically. That's why I'm oversimplifying this dialectic here today because it involved years of complex study of the scriptures to bear out the theory in scriptural reality. So the debate was not easily soluble or solved by merely negating the one, eternal damnation for billions. It's a strange thing that that's what's believed by millions of Christians. Eternal damnation for billions and salvation for billions of others. The debate wasn't merely to negate that and affirm the other, salvation for everybody, outright. So it wasn't just a simple exercise. Instead, the higher middle term is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. In other words, the soteriological question was solved for me Christologically. The question of salvation was answered by looking unto Jesus, in other words. The question of universal salvation versus eternal damnation for billions in the human race, and for billions of angels for that matter, is resolved in a higher middle term, that being USSJC, UICC, which of necessity, therefore, this, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, and we're learning this better in Hebrews than anywhere else, also of necessity included a self-sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that offering is universally redemptive, reconciling, and restorative. That's the impact of the cross. And not only the cross and death of Jesus Christ, but his resurrection from the dead. So I saw Jesus as God's salvation. That means I understood him as God's salvation of all of humanity and all of creation. Universal salvation, in other words, only makes sense by seeing Jesus as the universal savior. And not by trying to understand how some can be damned and some can be saved, some are elected, some are not elected, etc. So I'm speaking in an oversimplification here, but I simply want us to see Jesus as the reality of the restoration of all things. And this is my pastoral aim in Hebrews. 
If we're urged to look away to Jesus, and we are in Hebrews 12, 2, and to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, it seems that it would really be great to see him as an all-saving Savior. Now let's apply this method to another theological debate. Believe me, this is all going to make sense in the context of Hebrews. Another theological debate called impassibility. Impassibility is a debate that's been going on through history about God. It's a theological debate. Impassibility means God is incapable of experiencing suffering. And so passability would be God is able to suffer. He is capable of experiencing suffering. So God is held by some theologians to be impassable, that is, incapable of suffering. So on the left side of our ledger, in the same way of reasoning, we would put God is impassable. He's incapable of suffering. And on the right side of the ledger, we would say God is passable. He is capable of experiencing suffering. Now again, in my view, this debate is soluble or possible to solve. In fact, I think it has been solved in the realm of theology by showing that God is indeed capable of suffering, but in a way that's far greater than human or creaturely suffering, and that he's capable of suffering with people and with creation. So again, there's a higher term. It's not a decision straight between God. It's impossible for God to suffer, and it's possible for God to suffer. Up here, it is, we would say, it is possible for God to suffer, and this would be the higher term, but not in a way that mere humans suffer or creatures suffer or even angels suffer. So there's a higher middle term. It's not just a yes or no. Yes, God's able to suffer. God, no, God's not able to suffer. The answer is yes, God's able to suffer, but not in a way that creatures suffer or merely in the way that creatures suffer. So there's a higher middle term. It sort of forms a kind of triangular or pyramidal kind of an argument. And so another theological debate solved. And again, I don't want to be overly simplifying this, but that is how it has been solved. It's not only that God has suffered indescribably, in fact, to bring about human and creaturely redemption, reconciliation and rectification. God not only is capable of suffering, God did suffer in an incalculable way. And I'm speaking of all three members of the triune God. In order to bring about human and creaturely redemption, reconciliation and rectification. And this can only be finally explained in God's great love. God is not only capable of suffering then, he has now experienced both human and creaturely suffering because the logos, the eternal word, became flesh. 
through what is classically and traditionally called the incarnation, therefore, now God, having become flesh, has suffered humanly and has suffered divinely. Is God capable of experiencing suffering? Yes, but in a way that is even not known to us and it's incalculable to us and it's what was experienced by Jesus when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, going back all the way to increment 173 now for another exercise in this type of reasoning. And it's what Aquinas did himself. It's question 18 in part one of Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica. And this has a special view to his method. This is how this method came to me over time and over reading Summa Theologica, which is over 3,000 pages of reading. The question that he actually asked in his own Summa was whether life is properly attributed to God. And he proved that the demonstrably true answer can be demonstrated even in Scripture is not only that life can be attributed to God, but that life in the highest degree is properly in God. So again, we'd have yes or no. Is there life in God? Yes, life. No, life can't be attributed to God. In the higher term, however, life is attributed to God, but in a higher degree than we would normally imagine. So there is an answer that goes above. It's a middle term, but it's also a higher term of answer. Yes, life can be attributed to God, but not life like a flower has life or a frog has life or a human has life even, but life in a much higher degree. And so that again is the way Aquinas did it. It's not only, in his answer, it's not only that life can be attributed to God, but that, quote, he said, life is in the highest degree properly in God. So as with questions of universal salvation and the possibility of divine suffering, there's a possibility for the question to be answered in the negative or the affirmative. No, life cannot properly be attributed to God, or yes, life can be properly attributed to God. But the answer, again, is a higher middle term. Life in the highest degree is properly in God. So if one debates purely on the level of the biological, then a case can be made for the negative. If all we think of is biological life, then we say, no, God can't have life like biological life, like creatures, like animals, like vegetables, like vegetation, or even like human beings, or even like angels. No, that kind of life can't be attributed to God properly. But if one debates on a theological level, which is what we're doing, then life of an infinitely higher quality and degree is properly attributed or properly, we would say, in God. He has life in himself, as John 5 puts it. This is why scripturally speaking of the logos, the word, who is God, in a beginning before anything was made, it was said of him, in 
him is life. In him is life, or in him was life. That would have answered the question right off the bat anyways, because in John 1, 4, again, it's simple. The Greek phrase is phenomenal. Here it simply says, en, meaning in, auto, in him, that is the logos, zoe, z-o-e, zoe, life, hain, or ain, e-n, life, in him is life. Now, because the Logos in whom is life in the highest degree, because he became flesh, the possibility came into being that creatures of flesh may be granted this life in the highest degree. We call it eternal life, the life of the coming age, the life of God even in Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. And so this is the purpose, in fact, of the entry of the Logos, the eternal word, into the world through incarnation. Jesus, the incarnate eternal word, said this, speaking of those whom he called the sheep, my sheep, he said, I've come so that they may have life and have it more abundantly in John 10.10. 10. And in John 10, 28, still speaking as the good shepherd, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So this is that life in the highest degree that wouldn't normally belong to a human being, say nothing of a sheep, but now an eternal life, the highest degree of life that's found only in God can now be found in his creation and in humanity because of the incarnation in John eleven twenty five, 25 he goes farther and says I am the resurrection and the life Jesus is the life that he came to give he gives this life because he laid down his life as the ultimate act of divine and human love this life is the life of the coming age that can be had even now through believing in him. It is the life that will ultimately be given to all human beings because as Paul, Jesus' own envoy, wrote, in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. And speaking of the shepherd... Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13, 20, whom the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead. Why is he called not the good shepherd here? The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. But what does the great shepherd mean? The mega shepherd. It means that he is the shepherd of all all human beings, all humanity. He came up from the dead as the great shepherd, risen from the dead, now the shepherd over all of humanity who are his sheep because in this analogy, the great shepherd 
makes all of humanity to be alive. I give them eternal life. Who? All of humanity. Because in, all, in Christ, all will be made alive. Therefore, all humanity will be his sheep to whom he gives eternal life. The God of peace, says Hebrews 13, 20, the God of peace who led him from the dead, led him up by the hand from the dead. The God of peace is the same God who made peace by the blood of Christ's cross, so that through the blood of Christ's cross, the blood of an everlasting covenant, God would reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth in him. So the life, and I'll capitalize it now, L-I-F-E, the life that is in the highest degree in God is now the life that is to be in all of creation because of Jesus Christ, God's only eternally begotten Son who has this life in himself and who has this life to give. Bernard Lonergan wrote in the Redemption, page 363, this. It is the way of God's justice to act through secondary causes and in accordance with their natures. This is why God himself became human that he might be a secondary and proportionate cause in restoring all things. He quotes Ephesians 1.10 there. He cites it in a paragraph, in a parenthesis, and makes all things new in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So from that I would say God became human to suffer humanly and divinely in order to bring life in the highest degree to creatures, his creation, and especially to human beings who are dead in trespasses. For as Ephesians 2, 4 to 5 says, God who is rich in mercy, we know from Romans eleven thirty two, rich in mercy means he shows mercy to all, saving mercy to all. God who is rich in mercy through the great love wherewith he loved us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. And then Paul adds the exclamation, by grace you are saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have the life of God given to us in Christ Jesus. And he did it while we were dead in sins. Now, not only is life in the highest degree in God, life in the highest degree is in us, whom God made alive in Christ, and will be in all, for in Christ all will be made alive. Can't quote that enough. Can't quote that enough times. What are we doing? We're doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews as promised right in the beginning of our study 185 increments ago. 
Where are we in our study? We're in the study of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a splendid prefiguration of Jesus whose humanity is the secondary or intermediary cause in recapitulating all things and making all things new. God makes all things new by giving life in the highest degree to all things through his son who tasted death for all and whom God raised from the dead and set at his own right hand above the heavens. Now this Melchizedek was made to prefigure the Son of God, most of all because of him as, as of the Son of God whom he prefigured. The scripture says it is testified that he lives. That's where we get our title today, he lives. Again, I'll say it again. Melchizedek was made to prefigure the Son of God or to be a lens through which we see the Son of God most of all because of Melchizedek as it may also be said of the Son of God quote it is testified that is in the inspired scripture that he lives it is testified that he lives this Melchizedek indeed the Son of God lives as our great archpriest and in the power of an incorruptible life that's that highest degree of life it's found in Hebrews 7:16 down the road and I'm urging you to look down the road as we study this it's a life that he will give to all in the universal resurrection until then Jesus our great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek intercedes for us to save us to the uttermost now we can apply the method of reasoning that we've used with the doctrine of impassibility with the doctrine of universal salvation with the doctrine of whether there's life in God we can apply the same method of reasoning that we've used up to now to consider Melchizedek Let's consider hypothetically that an unbelieving contemporary of the first readers of Hebrews would ask, and I, I don't have any doubt that this happened. These Christians who left the Levitical system of ritual and confessed Jesus as the Son of God, I'm sure they're friends, they're unbelieving friends, and even some strong accusers from their former life would say, well, now that you've evidently dissociated yourself from the Levitical priests, the offerings, and especially the Day of Atonement, can you say that you even have a priest now? Do you have a priest? To that question, the teaching pastor comes in and kind of steps in between the accuser or this questioner and the church that he's writing to, and he says, not only do we have a priest, we have the priest of a most high degree, a much higher degree than Aaron and Levi and all the priests and archpriests of the Levitical order. So you see what he does, the higher term. Do you have a priest or do you not have a priest? Higher middle term. We have a priest, all right. And he's a greater priest than you can imagine. 
He's of a different order altogether than Levitical priesthood, and it's a better order. And it was an order that was made necessary by the failures and faults and flaws of the Levitical priesthood that you're still attached to. That's the reasoning here. So the teaching pastor who wrote this comes in and he actually answers the question. And then he says, and not only does this priest live, life is properly in him in the highest degree. He ever lives, always lives, endlessly lives in the power of an incorruptible resurrection life to intercede for us in order to save us to the uttermost. And that goes for you too, questioner. Jesus, whom we confess to be the Son of God then, is this great archpriest. No, we haven't put ourselves out of the favor of God by leaving the Levitical priesthood and the order of the priests and the animal sacrifices that they offered. We've put ourselves in a higher order and we have a far greater archpriest, one who lives forever. Not like your priests who die off and then they end their office and they end their service because they die and they need another one and another one and another one. Consequently, to the accusation that we can imagine would have been leveled at this group, and that's why they were getting weary. They were getting soul weary and soul tired. They were getting tired out. They were ready to faint because they kept having this accusation. Well, where are we now? We left the old system we left the old priesthood. What do we have? What's our offering? What do we have to offer? What, who do we have as a priest? Hebrews answers all those questions. And no doubt Satan was involved in this and used his own people as he always does. You, you now, you don't even have a high priest. And so you don't have anyone making sacrifices for you on the Day of Atonement. So you're expelled from the people of God. You're, you're going to die. You're going to die in your sins. And so the answer comes forth to that accuser. We not only have a high priest, we have an archpriest forever who was prefigured in Melchizedek about whom the scripture testifies quite simply. He lives. So let's look at it in context. Our passage is Hebrews 7, 4 through 8 right now. Hebrews 7, 4 through 8. Observe how great this one, Melchizedek, is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils of war. Indeed, the sons of Levi, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the Torah, the law, to collect a tithe from the people that is, from their brothers, even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now, beyond all dispute, the inferior in status, in this case, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, in this case, Melchizedek, the great archpriest. So in the one case, that's the Levitical priests, men who die receive tithes. 
But in the other case, that being Melchizedek as a prefiguration of the Son of God, it is testified that he lives. There it is. That's our Greek phrase for today. He lives. Now let me cite F.F. F. Bruce through David Peterson one more time. This is a very meaningful and pithy quote. He says this, Melchizedek remains a priest continually for the duration of his appearance in the biblical narrative. But in the antitype, Christ remains a priest continually without qualification. And it is not the type that determines the antitype, but the antitype that determines the type. Jesus is not portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is made like unto the Son of God. So the way he's portrayed in Scripture as he who lives makes him like or makes him prefigure the Son of God about whom we can say he lives. Not only do we say about Jesus that he lives, but because he lives, all humanity lives also. Now, because the inspired scripture simply testifies of Melchizedek that he lives, as opposed to all the Levitical priests and archpriests who invariably die, he was made to prefigure the Son of God of whom it is testified that he lives. And not only the Son of God lives, but as it later says in Hebrews, and I hope you'll follow this reasoning all the way down to Hebrews 7.23 through 25, it says, on the one hand, many are the priests, meaning that plurality here is a sign of weakness, many priests. Many are the priests who are prevented by death to continue in office. But because he abides or lives forever, Jesus, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Consequently, says 725, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, note this, he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives. So this is another way of saying because he, Jesus the Son of God, lives, and that's our title today, he lives. We will live also. Let me say it again. It's another way of saying because he, Jesus the Son of God, lives we will live also. In other words, him ever living to make intercession for us to save us completely is just another way of saying more simply, because he lives, we live also, and we will live also eternally. And by that we is meant we all, all of humanity. For in Christ all will be made alive. Seems like I quoted that sometime recently. So let it be known that those who come to God through Jesus have this life even now. And that eventually all will come to God through him because there is one God and one mediator between God and all of humanity. 
the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all and because he will also draw or drag all to himself. If I'm lifted up, I draw all to myself. I will draw all to myself. And drawing all to himself, he gives life to all. That's a combination of 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 and John 12, 32. So Melchizedek as a prefiguration and a lens through which to see Jesus, the Son of God, Melchizedek has the God-breathed testimony that he lives, simply says he lives. In a much more powerful way, Jesus is said to live. And because he lives, all will live. Jesus said it himself to his disciples just a little while before the cross, just a little while before the cross. He said this, and this is where we blend two things. We see Jesus and we live because he lives. Watch in one sentence what Jesus does here. John 14, 19, he said, in just a little while, the world will see me no longer. But you will see me. What's Hebrews all about? We see Jesus. The eyes of his heart, with our heart. The world doesn't see him. The world curses him. The world ignores him. The world neglects him. The world mocks him. The world puts him into a pantheon of other gods. The world doesn't see him. Christians don't see him. They see him as a good shepherd holding a lamb. They don't see him as a great shepherd saving all mankind. We see him. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So again, John 14, 19, in just a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. And then he said this, because I live, you will live too. Does that ultimately apply to everybody? I think so, because in Christ, all will be made alive. You mean when they believe? No, all will be made alive, being dead in trespasses and sins. Believing we experience that life even now. Believing we have the life of the coming age in our experience even now. And someday all will come to the unity of the faith. All humanity. And all will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's no doubts here about the universality of the saving significance of Jesus in whom there is life and who gives life to all. So as we close, notice what it says. Notice it. He says, you will see me. And we see Jesus. We have yet to see him as he is and to be made like him. Oh, how we look forward to that. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. And notice also that he says, because I live, you will live too. We're destined to live as he lives. Body, soul, and spirit sanctified. First Thessalonians 5.23, another way of saying Hebrews 7.25. Having life in the very highest degree. 
Faithful is he who calls us with this heavenly calling, who will also do this. 524 of 1 Thessalonians. To save us to the uttermost simply means to save us completely. To save us completely is to sanctify us wholly and entirely, body, soul, and spirit. And that means life in bodily resurrection forever. The highest possible degree and quality of life that would have been impossible for us had God not become man in the man Christ Jesus. So, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is with this confident hope that we face the barrage of adversities and variants of disease that are threatening the well-being of billions on this planet. We look away to Jesus. We look away from all these things to Jesus, who is our great archpriest and who always lives to make intercession for us to save us completely. We place our trust in you afresh, Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for you are faithful, and great is your faithfulness. You will not permit us to be tested beyond what we can endure in your grace, and you provide a way every time of escape so that we may bear life's adversities, not fearing death or life or anything in all of creation, or things to come, or things that are present in this world today. I pray that you'll teach us to number our days and to live lives of integrity and to not hide secret things, but make them openly known to you so that we can live above the fray and we can live above the old sinful nature we can live beyond the flesh with all of its passions and cravings and desires and that we can live with life indeed and life more abundantly in your son. And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen.